This is David Free, and today I feel like doing a podcast about somebody I like. I'm going to be talking about Oscar Wilde, and I've called the podcast The Trials of Oscar Wilde because what I'm mainly going to be talking about is Wilde's life rather than his work. With almost any other artist, I would say that's getting things the wrong way around. I'd say read the work first and come to the biography later, if at all. But with Oscar Wilde, the life was the main event. He said it himself when his life was nearly over. Would you like to know the great drama of my life, he said. It is that I've put all my genius into my life. I've put only my talent into my works. The story of Wilde's life and his demise is an extremely dramatic one. It's also one of the most heartbreaking life stories you'll ever hear. All biographies are sad in the end because the hero always winds up dying. But the story of Wilde's life, as we'll see, is more than just sad. It's tragic. His life had the resonance of a parable or a morality tale. It had a clear and hauntingly perfect shape. There was something Shakespearean or even biblical about the way misery was piled on top of misery in the last few years of Oscar Wilde's life. It's almost as if the man's downfall had been consciously engineered by somebody in order to make a point. And in a way, the story of Wilde's life was consciously crafted, and the author of the story was Wilde himself. W.H. Auden said that Oscar Wilde was, quote, both by genius and by fate, primarily an actor, a performer. From the beginning, Wilde performed his life and continued to do so even after fate had taken the plot out of his hands. Wilde's friend George Bernard Shaw said something very similar. Wilde simplified his life, Shaw wrote, almost as if he knew instinctively that there must be no episodes to spoil the great situation at the end of the last act but one. Oscar seems to have said, I will reduce your standards to absurdity, not by writing them down, though I could do that so well, in fact have done it, but by actually living them down and dying them down. End quote. In his work, Oscar Wilde tended to steer clear of serious themes. He was a very funny writer. But at the end of his life, he lived out themes that could hardly have been more deadly serious. One of them was the theme of martyrdom. Wilde has been compared to Jesus Christ, not because of the content of his philosophies, but because of the way he suffered to expose the sins and hypocrisies of his time. Basically, Victorian England crucified Oscar Wilde for being a practicing homosexual, which was a criminal offence at the time. In 1895, Wilde was put on trial for committing acts of gross indecency with other consenting males, and he received the maximum sentence, which was two years' imprisonment with hard labour. For Wilde, that effectively ended up being a death sentence. He was imprisoned at the age of 40, was released from prison at the age of 42, and died at the age of 46. He spent the last few years of his life living in poverty and disgrace in France. By that time, he was physically and mentally destroyed. He had lost his audience, and he'd lost his will to write, and finally he seemed to lose his will to live. As we'll see, there was something very odd and very spooky about the way Oscar Wilde willingly, or half-willingly, went to his own destruction. Wilde could have avoided going to prison 
if he'd chosen to flee England before the inevitable sentence was passed on him, and he had many chances to do that, but something seemed to attract him to his own ruin. It was almost as if he knew that somebody had to be the great martyr of that hypocritical age, and he might as well be the one. He makes you think of Socrates here, as well as Christ, because Socrates too had his chance to escape the absurd sentence that his society imposed on him, but chose to drink the hemlock anyway. With Socrates and Christ, though, there's no way of telling how much of what we know about them is factually true, and how much of it is myth made up after the event to give their lives meaning and shape. But Wilde's martyrdom occurred in the full light of modern history. We know that it really did all happen, even if it seems too bad to be true. Many excellent books have been written about Wilde's life. Probably the best one to start with is Richard Ellman's Oscar Wilde, which is one of the greatest literary biographies ever written. Ellman's is the book that I'll mainly be relying on for biographical information, and I would recommend it to anyone who wants to follow up on Wilde's story in more detail. For specific information about Wilde's trials, I'll be relying on H. Montgomery Hyde's book, The Trials of Oscar Wilde, which contains long excerpts from the trial transcripts. It doesn't contain the full transcripts of every trial, but as far as I know it contains the most complete account of them that's ever been published. To understand how tragic the end of Oscar Wilde's life was, we need to appreciate how brilliant his career had been up to that point. He was born in Ireland, a country that for some reason has produced way more than its fair share of high-achieving writers in the English language. In the 20th century alone, you had W.B. Yeats, Bernard Shaw, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, Flann O'Brien, and Seamus Heaney. With most of those writers, you're never in much danger of forgetting that they're Irish, because their Irishness was central to their work. But with Wilde, you sometimes can forget that he was an Irishman. Not that he ever hid the fact. He just wasn't the sort of artist who dwelt on things like national identity. My Irish accent, he said once, was one of the many things I forgot at Oxford. Before he went to Oxford, Wilde was a star student at Trinity College, Dublin. There, and at Oxford, he cut a strange and striking figure. He was an athlete and a dandy, known for his flamboyant dress sense. But he was also physically a very large man. Bernard Shaw, who knew Wilde fairly well, believed that Wilde suffered from a mild form of elephantiasis, which in those days was called gigantism. Shaw recalled that Wilde was, quote, an overgrown man with something not quite normal about his bigness. There's a biographical movie about Oscar Wilde called Simply Wilde, in which he was portrayed by Stephen Fry, and Fry was exactly right for the part. Wilde was a six-foot-three-inch dandy who wore his hair long, proclaimed his belief in art for art's sake, and decorated his rooms at Magdalen College with peacock feathers and blue china. But he had also learned how to box, and when a group of undergraduate thugs came to his room once to beat him up and break all his stuff, Wilde beat them up instead. The incident foreshadowed something that would become important later on. Wilde was a physically courageous man, and he didn't run away from bullies. His Oxford career finished on a high. 
He got a double first and he won a prestigious poetry prize. After coming down from Oxford, he settled in London and quickly established himself as the cleverest young man in England. In 1881, Gilbert and Sullivan satirised the aesthetic movement in their opera Patience, and their flamboyant central character of Bunthorne was generally assumed to be a send-up of Oscar Wilde. When the opera proved a hit in New York, an American promoter capitalised by booking Wilde to do a lecture tour of the United States. The tour was meant to go for four months, but Wilde was such a raging success in America that he wound up staying there for almost a year. When he arrived at Customs House in New York, he said, I have nothing to declare except my genius. Or anyway, that's what he's said to have said. By that time, Oscar Wilde was already known as the age's premier wit, so as well as being quoted accurately all the time, he was often credited with witty things that he hadn't really said, and worse, with witty things that had in fact been said by other people. Wilde's ideal form was the epigram, or the expertly crafted one-liner. At his best, he was a master of the elegant but weighty sentence. I can resist everything except temptation, he wrote, and a cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing, and every saint has a past and every sinner a future, and we are all lying in the gutter, but some of us are looking up at the stars. One of the odd things about Oscar Wilde is that you can know his work fairly well and still not be able to recall exactly which work each of these immortal phrases comes from. Maybe they're from one of his plays, maybe they're from one of his essays or his short stories, or maybe he just said them at somebody's dinner table. And it doesn't really matter, because the truth is that Wilde's works were fairly shapeless and more or less interchangeable. Mainly they were just delivery devices for his one-liners. In his time, he was mainly known as a playwright, but his plays, with one exception, were not very distinguished as plays. The exception to this was The Importance of Being Earnest, which was Wilde's final play, and which people generally considered to be his masterpiece. The play had just opened in the West End when Wilde's career hit the wall. He might well have gone on to write many more plays just as good as The Importance of Being Earnest, or even better than it, if he'd been allowed to go on writing plays. But of course he wasn't, so we'll never know. Anyway, until he wrote The Importance of Being Earnest, Wilde's plays were all pretty formulaic, and the characters in them were thinly sketched and almost impossible to tell apart from one another. In fact, many of the characters in his plays were just stand-ins for him, and they said things that Wilde probably already had said at somebody's dinner table. Sometimes Wilde didn't even bother to put his one-liners into larger structures, Sometimes he just published a batch of his latest epigrams in a journal or a magazine, such as his Phrases and Philosophies for the Use of the Young, which appeared in a magazine in 1894. To love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance, was one of the phrases in that collection. Another one was, It is only by not paying one's bills that one can hope to live in the memory of the commercial classes. If Oscar Wilde were alive today, you could imagine him being a champion tweeter, although you'd first have to imagine a version of Twitter where verbal excellence was recognised and appreciated for its own sake. 
As we'll see, there were a lot of reprehensible things about the culture that Wilde lived in, but it had a few good points too, and one of them was that it knew what wit was, and it revered people who had it. Wilde became a star at a time when the public had very good literary taste, so that the biggest celebrities of the age were also the most talented people of the age. During the 1880s, Wilde quarrelled with his friend James Whistler, the American painter, who accused Wilde of plagiarising his ideas about art. When Whistler said something brilliant to Wilde in somebody's drawing room, Wilde laughed and said, I wish I had said that. And Whistler replied, You will, Oscar, you will. Or again, this is what Whistler was said to have said. Whether he really did say it is beside the point. The point is that newspapers from London to New York reported that he had. In those days, a good zinger was an international event. As it happens, I can remember the exact sentence of Oscar Wilde's that first alerted me to the excellence of his way with words. I was reading his collected letters, and I came across a letter that Wilde had written to a newspaper during his public feud with Whistler. In reply to Whistler's claim that he was a plagiarist, Wilde wrote, quote, As for borrowing Mr. Whistler's ideas about art, the only thoroughly original ideas I have ever heard him express have had reference to his own superiority over painters greater than himself. What I love about that is the way Wilde gets a fairly complicated insult into a short and elegant sentence. There's not a word wasted there. Wilde boils the idea down into the minimum number of words, and he puts those words in just the right order, so that his comeback is given its perfect expression. It's like a return of serve taken early, and smacked down the line at 150 miles an hour. There was no way Whistler was going to get his racket on that. George Bernard Shaw, whose career in the English theatre started at around the same time as Wilde's, said that if you want to tell people the truth, you'd better be sure to make them laugh, or they will kill you. Shaw no doubt thought he was joking there, of course. He didn't mean that people were literally going to kill you. After all, Victorian England was a highly civilised and refined place. It had come a long way from violence and barbarism. But the fate of Oscar Wilde would end up revealing that Victorian England was far closer to barbarism than it liked to think it was. Before Wilde fell off the tightrope, though, he performed on it with far more style than any other writer of the time. He told his audiences some pretty scandalous truths, but he made them laugh while he was doing it. In fact, he was a fair bit funnier than Shaw himself was. Wilde's work was full of subversive little jokes about the hollowness of Victorian morality. He said that wickedness was a myth invented by good people to account for the curious attractiveness of others. He said that morality is simply the attitude we adopt towards people we personally dislike. That could almost have been Nietzsche talking there. But because Wilde was funny, he could say things like that and still be accepted into the innermost circles of respectable British society. Or anyway, he could for a while. Wilde's private life, as it happens, started off on a very conventional and heterosexual note. During the 1870s, he pursued a female Irish beauty named Florence Balcom. But Balcom finished up marrying a different Irishman instead, namely Bram Stoker, 
the future author of Dracula. So Oscar Wilde went in pursuit of another Dublin-born beauty, a woman named Constance Lloyd. Like Oscar himself, Constance came from an impeccably respectable Anglo-Irish family. The couple married in 1884 and they had two sons over the next few years. But during his wife's second pregnancy, Wilde was seduced by a young male admirer named Robert Ross. Wilde was 32 at the time and this was his first homosexual experience. Robbie Ross was a keen student of Wilde's work and he probably guessed from reading it that the author was ripe for conversion, if conversion is the right word for a man who was basically already there. In his work, Wilde had already shown himself to be very interested in themes of deception and disguise and subterfuge. Just a year earlier, he'd written an essay called The Truth of Masks. Still, Wilde's encounter with Robbie Ross was a crucial turning point for his life and his work. He started to move in London's gay underworld and took to his new life like a duck to water. As Elman puts it in his biography, after 1886, Wilde was able to think of himself as a criminal moving guiltily among the innocent. Instead of challenging Victorian society by words, he engaged it by deeds as well. One thing that may come as a surprise to us is that the law that Oscar Wilde broke when he had sex with Robbie Ross and other men wasn't some ancient statute that had been on the books for centuries. It was actually a brand new law, which had been passed by the British Parliament in 1885, just a year before Wilde became a practising homosexual. The Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 criminalised what it called acts of gross indecency between males. So from 1885 on, it became illegal in Britain to be a practising male homosexual. The legal situation before that had been far less ominous. Before 1885, only one particular homosexual act had been illegal in Britain, and that was sodomy, which had been outlawed way back in the time of Henry VIII, when Parliament had passed something that it candidly called the Buggery Act of 1533. That act prohibited the, quote, detestable and abominable vice of buggery committed with either man or beast, buggery being strictly defined as anal penetration. The Act of 1533 decreed that this act was punishable by death, although in 1861 the maximum penalty was reduced to life imprisonment. Even so, prosecutions under this law had become increasingly rare in Britain, partly because the penalty was so harsh but mainly because it was nearly impossible to prove in a court of law that one consenting male had penetrated another consenting male. So that was the state of play until 1885. Homosexuality was of course frowned on by British society, but other than buggery, no homosexual act was against the law. And that was when Parliament began debating the new Criminal Law Amendment Act. To begin with, the reforms proposed by this act had nothing to do with homosexuality. But then a crusading parliamentarian named Henry Labouchere insisted on tacking on that clause that criminalised acts of gross indecency between men. His amendment didn't criminalise lesbian activity, perhaps because he couldn't bring himself to believe that women would do such things. 
Nor did Labouchere's amendment define exactly what an act of gross indecency between males might be. Victorians were way too squeamish to be specific about things like that. But the obvious intention was to criminalise all acts of homosexuality that weren't covered by the buggery statute. Labouchere wanted the penalty for these so-called acts of indecency to be seven years with hard labour, but in the end he was talked down to a maximum of two years with hard labour. When the Act of 1885 was passed, it made life extremely difficult and scary for men like Oscar Wilde. Underneath its glittering surface, Wilde's life was made sordid by the law. It forced him to live his life in the company of other criminals, including a good many common thieves and scumbags, and he had to spend a lot of his time fending off blackmailers. Lawyers referred to the new law as the Blackmailer's Charter. There's no doubt that at one level, Wilde enjoyed the thrill of this. After 1886, his work became even more shot through with themes of duplicity and subterfuge. In 1889, he wrote an essay called The Decay of Lying, and published a story called The Portrait of Mr. W.H., which discussed the homoerotic sonnets of Shakespeare in very daring terms. In 1890, Wilde published a then-controversial novel called The Picture of Dorian Gray, which updated the old story of Faust's bargain with the devil. Early in the story, Wilde's hero, the handsome youngster Dorian Gray, has his portrait painted by a friend, Dorian admires the painting and wishes out loud that he could change places with it. Here's how Wilde puts it in the novel. Quote, he uttered a mad wish that he himself might remain young and the portrait grow old, that his own beauty might be untarnished and the face on the canvas bear the burden of his passions and his sins. And that, of course, is exactly what ends up happening. By supernatural means, Dorian is granted the gift of eternal youth, while his portrait, which he hides away in an attic, turns all warped and hideous to keep track of his sins. Exactly what his sins are, the novel doesn't say, but in the original version of the story which Wilde published in a magazine, there were some pretty blatant hints about homosexuality. For example, in the original version, the character who paints Dorian Gray's portrait admits to liking Dorian with, quote, far more romance of feeling than a man usually gives to a friend. Somehow, I have never loved a woman, he says. I suppose I never had time. When the picture of Dorian Gray was published in book form, some of Wilde's more cautious friends persuaded him to take out that line, along with several other lines like it. Still, there's no doubt that Oscar Wilde enjoyed sailing very close to the wind. By our standards, he wasn't exactly out. But if he wasn't exactly out, he wasn't exactly in either. For its time, his work was dangerously daring. A few years ago, I toyed with the idea of writing a brief essay done in the spirit of Wilde that would have looked at some of the curious parallels between the careers of Oscar Wilde and Freddie Mercury. Both men treated life as a performance. Both men did their sentence but committed no crime. Both wore a series of masks that simultaneously concealed and revealed their true identities. Both men became huge stars in England despite having distinctly non-English 
ethnic roots. Wilde was Irish, and Mercury's forebears came from Persia via India. Both men had a habit of hiding their teeth when they talked. Mercury, because he had four extra teeth in the top row, which caused his front teeth to protrude, and Wilde because his teeth were so discoloured that they were almost black. Wilde had contracted syphilis when he was a student, and his doctors had treated the disease with guess what substance? They treated it with mercury, and it was the mercury that had blackened Wilde's teeth. But of course the main thing that Oscar Wilde and Freddie Mercury had in common is that both men were gay, or at least predominantly gay. And while neither man ever formally came out, in the sense of flatly saying to the world, I am gay, both of them made very little attempt to conceal their sexuality in their works, and if you listened to their stuff with any attention, you had to be pretty thick not to work out what was going on. Time and again in his work, Wilde talked about the curious charms of attractive young men but for a long time his society refused to believe that he could possibly be saying what he seemed to be saying. Here again Wilde shone a spotlight on the stupidity and hypocrisy of Victorian moral standards. His society was so morally confused that at some level it simply refused to believe that homosexuality was actually a thing. So as long as Wilde alluded to his sexuality with the right amount of style and refinement, people were prepared to look the other way. But all the time they were waiting for him to put a foot wrong and to stumble so they could help take him the rest of the way down. By the early 1890s, Wilde had already been blackmailed several times by low-life types who stole the love letters that he'd written to other men and then made him buy them back for exorbitant sums of money. Finally, in 1891, Wilde met and fell in love with a young man with whom it was extremely dangerous to be in love. This was Lord Alfred Douglas, better known to Wilde and his other friends as Bosey. Bosey was a nasty piece of work in many ways. He was a horrible, spoiled little aristocrat. He also fancied himself as a poet, although only one line of his verse has really survived. That comes from a poem he wrote in 1894 called Two Loves, and the line is, I am the love that dare not speak its name. The line is often credited to Oscar Wilde, but it was Bosey who wrote it. From Wilde's point of view, the most dangerous thing about Bosey was his father, the Marquis of Queensbury. The Marquis of Queensbury was a thug and a philistine, and an all-round terrible advertisement for the English aristocracy. In his capacity as an administrator of English athletics, Queensbury had helped to develop the rules of modern boxing, otherwise known as the Queensbury Rules, which stipulated, among other things, that boxers had to wear gloves and fight in a standard-sized ring and not hit each other below the belt. Queensbury was scandalised by the apparent nature of his son's relationship with Oscar Wilde, and he became obsessed by the idea that Wilde had, quote, corrupted his son. The truth was that Bosey was already a pretty corrupt character before he met Wilde. If anything, it was Bosey who corrupted Oscar, not in the trivial sexual sense, but in deeper and more important ways. 
Certainly Wilde himself came to believe that later on. Then again, Wilde was by far the older man in the partnership. He was nearly 40 when he met Bosey, and Bosey was barely 20. So from the outside, it was easy to imagine that Wilde was the one calling the shots. And so from 1891 onward, the Marquis of Queensbury made it his mission to tear Oscar Wilde down. He wanted a big public confrontation with Wilde. He wanted to desecrate his image. He wanted to smear him in public as a sexual degenerate. And if Queensbury succeeded in publicly accusing Wilde of leading an unlawful lifestyle, Wilde would be put in a very difficult position. If he didn't defend himself, people would take that as a sign that Queensbury's claim was true. The alternative would be to sue Queensbury for libel. And if Wilde did that, Queensbury would have his chance to prove in a court of law that Wilde was indeed gay. As Wilde later put it, quote, he went from restaurant to restaurant looking for me in order to insult me before the whole world and in such a manner that if I retaliated, I would be ruined and if I did not retaliate, I would be ruined also. So a kind of shadow hung over Oscar Wilde as his career entered what should have been its most glorious phase. In the early 1890s, he had a run of theatrical triumphs in London's West End. Lady Windermere's Fan, which opened in 1892, was his first hit play. On opening night, Wilde famously appeared at the curtain call to congratulate the audience on its performance, which suggested, he said, that they must have liked the play almost as much as he liked it himself. A year later, his next play, A Woman of No Importance, was also a hit. In January 1895, Wilde's third social comedy, An Ideal Husband, opened in front of an audience that included the Prince of Wales. And Wilde had written another play too, which was already in rehearsals and was almost ready to go. This was The Importance of Being Earnest, which, as I've said, is these days generally considered to be Wilde's dramatic masterpiece. But when it was first performed, many critics were perplexed, because as far as they could see, the play made no attempt to be morally serious at all. And that, of course, is exactly why we now think of it as Wilde's best and most characteristic work. If you watch Wilde's earlier plays today, you'll find that they only intermittently sound like the real Wilde. They spend a lot of time sounding very creaky and old-fashioned, because Wilde at the time was still obediently ticking all the boxes that Victorian audiences and critics expected him to tick. You could make a similar complaint about the picture of Dorian Gray. Although many of the lines in that novel are funny and subversive, in the end what the book says is that if you sin against nature, you deserve to be punished but the importance of being earnest was a breakthrough. It was the first of Oscar Wilde's works that sounded like Oscar Wilde all the way through. For the first time, the delivery device was as original and provocative as the one-liners inside it were. Years later, the poet W.H. Auden, who of course was gay as well, called Wilde's play an imperishable masterpiece and said it was perhaps the only pure verbal opera in English. Just about every character in The Importance of Being Earnest is leading a secret double life of one kind or another. 
And we can see now that the play is full of sly references to Wilde's covert homosexual adventures. Christopher Hitchens said once that it's ironic that the play has now been, quote, deemed fit even for the most demure school productions. It's a safe bet, said Hitchens, that Wilde would have appreciated the joke. But although the play was riddled with double-edged gags that only his friends in the underworld would get, there was nothing mean-spirited about its humour. On the contrary, the play gives you a sense of the generosity of Wilde's talent and his wit, and a sense of how much he loved life. He was only 40 when the play opened. Artistically, he was just beginning to hit his straps. But the Queensbury situation was coming to a head when The Importance of Being Earnest premiered. Just before opening night, Wilde took a brief vacation in Algeria. There he met up with his old friend, the French novelist, André Gide, who was also gay, and who could see that disaster was looming for Wilde. Later in his autobiography, Gide recounted a conversation that the pair had had in Algeria. But if you go back, what will happen? Gide said to Wilde. Don't you know the risk you're running? And Wilde replied, That one can never know. My friends beg me to be careful, but how can I be careful? That would be a backward step. I must go on as far as possible. I cannot go much further. Something is bound to happen. Something else. Here he broke off, Gide records, and the next day he left for England. Back in England, the opening night of the importance of being earnest passed without nasty incident, but only just. Queensbury had planned to wreck Wilde's triumph by pelting him with rotten vegetables during the curtain call while outing him as a pervert in front of the first night crowd. Queensbury was in many ways a kind of Looney Tunes villain, but unfortunately his campaign against Wilde was all too real and there was nothing funny about the way it was going to end. Luckily, though, Wilde heard about this particular plan ahead of time and he arranged for the police to circle the theatre that night and stop Queensbury from getting in. But Queensbury was determined, and he couldn't be dodged forever. Four days later, he called on Wilde at his club. Wilde wasn't there, so Queensbury wrote a message on a calling card, and he left it with the porter. And the message said, For Oscar Wilde, posing sodomite. Actually, Queensbury wrote somdomite, with an extra M, because on top of all his other charms, Queensbury was a borderline illiterate. Leaving this card at Oscar Wilde's club was a big public act. It was the formal accusation of homosexuality that Wilde had been dreading. If he wanted to be a proper English gentleman, Wilde would now be obliged to sue Queensbury for criminal libel. That night, Wilde sat down and wrote a letter to Bosey. I don't see anything now but a criminal prosecution, he wrote. My whole life seems ruined by this man. The Tower of Ivory is assailed by the foul thing. I don't know what to do. Unfortunately, Bosey was exactly the wrong person to ask for advice here. He feared and loathed his father, and was ready to do whatever it took to do damage to him, preferably in a way that posed no danger to himself. 
So Bosey was dead keen for Wilde to go ahead and sue his father. If Queensbury was found guilty, he could end up going to jail for up to seven years. The fact that the suit could tarnish or even destroy Wilde didn't seem to bother Bosey all that much. The next day, Wilde and Bosey went to see a solicitor to discuss the advisability of pressing charges against Queensbury. The solicitor asked Wilde point-blank if there was any truth to Queensbury's allegation that he was a sodomite, or even opposing sodomite. Wilde lied and said no. So the solicitor advised him to press charges. Wilde then went to see a barrister. The barrister too asked him if Queensbury's allegation was true. Again, Wilde lied and said it was absolutely false. The barrister believed him and agreed to take the case. So Wilde went ahead and sued, and Queensbury was arrested and charged with libel. Wilde had walked right into his trap. Obviously, Queensbury intended to defend himself in court, and in order to do that, he would have to prove that his apparently libelous claim was in fact true, and that it was in the public interest to spread the news. So before the trial began, Queensbury hired a team of private investigators to check up on Wilde's personal history. And unfortunately, those investigators had no trouble rounding up a number of young men who would be ready to testify that Oscar Wilde was indeed a practicing homosexual. Some of these young men were blackmailers. Some of them were male prostitutes, known as rent boys. Technically, the Marquess of Queensbury was meant to be the one on trial, but in effect, the trial of Queensbury would end up being the first trial of Oscar Wilde. It's highly unlikely that Wilde would ever have been prosecuted for indecency if he hadn't first launched his libel suit against Queensbury. But as soon as he walked into a courtroom to do that, the facts of Wilde's private life were going to be put on the legal record. From that point on, clever talk wasn't going to cut it anymore. It was going to be a matter of sworn witnesses and hard evidence. The next stop was bound to be an indecency trial, and the stop after that would be prison. Even before the libel trial began, Wilde's friends could see what was going to happen. On the eve of the trial, two of Wilde's closest friends, Bernard Shaw and Frank Harris, met with him in the Café Royal in London. They urged Wilde to drop the suit and flee to Paris, where people were more tolerant. Wilde seemed to see their point, and he seemed to be on the brink of taking their advice. But then Bosey turned up at the cafe, and he started loudly saying that anyone who wanted Oscar to run away from his accusers was no real friend of Oscar's. Bosey stormed out of the room, and Wilde stormed out after him. Sadly, Wilde was Bosey-whipped. He listened to his idiotic boyfriend instead of to his real friends, and the results were going to be catastrophic. Later on, when Wilde was in prison, he wrote a long letter to Bosey in which he looked back on his fatal mistake. As he put it, quote, The one disgraceful, unpardonable, and to all time contemptible action of my life was to allow myself to be forced into appealing to society for help and protection against your father. Once I had put into motion the forces of society, society turned on me and said, have you been living all this time in defiance of my laws, and do you now appeal to those laws for protection? 
You shall have those laws exercised to the full. You shall abide by what you have appealed to. But only in hindsight was Wilde able to see that. As the libel trial began, he seemed to have no idea of just how much danger he was in. In the witness box, Wilde was in high spirits and at the top of his form, perhaps for the final time in his life. Wilde's friends would always say that he was even more brilliant in conversation than he was on the page, and it's a sad irony that the best proof we have of this comes from the transcripts of Wilde's various appearances in court during the trials that brought down the curtain on his artistic life. When testifying at the libel trial, Wilde made the mistake of treating the whole thing as a game or a performance. Under questioning from his own counsel, he gave a wickedly funny account of being blackmailed by a man named William Allen, who stole one of Wilde's love letters to Alfred Douglas and then tried to get Wilde to buy it back. This is how Wilde described their negotiations. I said to him, I suppose you have come about my beautiful letter to Lord Alfred Douglas. He said, a very curious construction can be put on that letter. I said in reply, art is rarely intelligible to the criminal classes. He said, a man has offered me 60 pounds for it. I said to him, if you take my advice, you will go to that man and sell my letter to him for 60 pounds. I myself have never received so large a sum for any prose work of that length. Like many of Wilde's quips on that first day of the trial, this one got a big laugh from the public gallery. But a courtroom was a dangerous place to be brilliant, as Wilde found out when he was cross-examined by Queensbury's counsel, whose name was Edward Carson. Like Wilde, Carson was an Irishman. Indeed, he had been a classmate of Wilde's at Trinity College Dublin and had been the perennial runner-up when Wilde won all the university prizes. When Wilde heard that Carson would be opposing him in court, he said, no doubt he will perform his task with all the added bitterness of an old friend. And Wilde was right to fear Carson. In the courtroom, Carson was in his proper element, and Wilde wasn't. Carson began by asking Wilde a few questions about his work. He asked him if there were passages in the picture of Dorian Gray that, quote, might lead an ordinary individual to believe that it might have a certain tendency. Wilde replied, I have no knowledge of the views of ordinary individuals. As the cross-examination proceeded, Wilde scored a few more hits of this kind, and Carson was happy to let him do that, because Carson was using the courtroom equivalent of the rope-a-dope technique. He was letting Wilde quip his way towards self-inflicted disaster. At a crucial point in the cross-examination, Carson asked Wilde about his relationship with a young male servant at Bosey's rooming house. Did you ever kiss him? Carson asked. Oh dear, no, Wilde replied. He was a peculiarly plain boy. He was unfortunately extremely ugly. In the context of a trial about his sexuality, that, of course, was an incredibly rash thing for Wilde to say. Carson pounced. Was that the reason why you did not kiss him, he said. Wilde knew straight away that he'd gone too far and had been too clever for his own good. For once, he had no witty reply. He just said, Oh, Mr. Carson, you are impertinent and insolent. But Carson had Wilde on the ropes now. 
Why did you mention his ugliness? He demanded to know. Wilde stammered and couldn't muster a coherent answer and seemed to be on the verge of tears. But Carson wouldn't let up. Why, he said. Why? Why did you add that? Finally, Wilde said, You sting me and insult me and try to unnerve me. And at times one says things flippantly when one ought to speak more seriously. So you said it flippantly, Carson said. Yes, said Wilde. It was a flippant answer. Unfortunately, though, the exchange had done damage to Wilde that couldn't be undone. That afternoon, Wilde's counsel hastily rested his case. Carson then stood up to deliver the opening speech for the defence. He revealed that he would be calling a succession of witnesses who would testify to having personally committed shocking acts with Oscar Wilde. Before Carson could start calling those witnesses, though, court was adjourned for the day. That evening, Wilde met with his counsel, who told him that there was no way now that they could win a guilty verdict against Queensbury. The very best they could do was keep the trial going for another day so that Wilde would have a chance to slip away to France while the defence presented its case. So Wilde had a second clear chance now to flee the country, and this time he had even better reason to go than he'd had before. But again, he couldn't bring himself to leave. The next morning in court, Wilde's lawyers withdrew the prosecution. Humiliatingly for Wilde, they were forced to concede that Queensbury's calling him a sodomite wasn't a crime or a lie, and that Queensbury's actions had been justified in the public interest. As soon as Wilde's lawyer admitted that, a criminal prosecution became inevitable. Later that day, the witness statements collected by Queensbury's lawyers were sent to the Director of Public Prosecutions, and at 3.30 that same afternoon, an officer from Scotland Yard applied to a magistrate for a warrant for Oscar Wilde's arrest. The magistrate didn't sign the warrant immediately. Instead, he adjourned the court for 90 minutes, apparently so that Wilde would have time to take the last train to Dover and get on a boat to France. You could say that this was decent of the magistrate, but at the same time it underlined how hypocritical the British establishment was about Wilde's so-called crimes. Not all that many people involved in the case really believed that Wilde's offences were so bad that he belonged in prison. They would have been content if he'd just pissed off to France and stopped flaunting his unacceptable lifestyle in England. Once again, Wilde's friends urged him to take the hint and go. His wife urged him to go too. After all, this time it was crystal clear what would happen if Wilde remained in England. He would be arrested and tried, and he would almost certainly be convicted. But a strange sort of inertia or indecision seemed to descend on Wilde that evening. At the Cadogan Hotel in London, he sat in his room with a suitcase half-packed while his friends vainly urged him to get a move on. Finally, when it was clear that he had missed the last train to Dover, Wilde said, It's too late. The train has gone. I shall stay and do my sentence, whatever it is. And that's where I'm going to end part one of this podcast about the trials of Oscar Wilde. Part two is coming soon. In the meantime, if you like what I do and want to support the show, there are several ways you can do that. 
You can tell a friend about it. You can rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can support it directly by going to paypal.me slash goodbadbogus or to patreon.com slash goodbadbogus. Until next time, I'm David Free, and you've been listening to The Good, The Bad, and The Bogus. <laughs>